The America's National Parks podcast is sponsored by L.L. Bean. L.L. Bean is a proud partner of the National Park Foundation, and you can help them support the parks by shopping their limited edition National Park collection. Every time you purchase products from the L.L. Bean National Park collection, which includes totes, shirts, hats, patches, and more, you're helping to protect, restore, and improve parks throughout the U.S. Search National Park Collection at LLBean.com and be an outsider with L.L. Bean. Only a few miles of rough wagon roads existed within Glacier National Park when Congress established it on May 11, 1910. Many people, including the first park superintendent, William R. Logan, wanted to build a trans-mountain road across the park. Supporters argued that a good road system would enable people to reach the interior of the park even if they could not afford the rates of the Great Northern Railroad and its chalets. An enthusiasm for good roads and automobiling had infected National Park Service officials as much as the rest of the country. But sheer cliffs, short construction seasons, 60-foot snowdrifts, and tons of solid rock made the idea of building a road across the Continental Divide a unique challenge. I'm Jason Epperson, and today on America's National Parks, Glaciers Going to the Sun Road. Though there was support, many people raised objections to such a drive. A few local businessmen thought it would be inefficient and foolish to construct a road through the park's southern boundary next to the Great Northern Railroad tracks. Eventually, they were convinced by the additional tourist dollars the road would bring to their local communities. By 1921, when Congress provided the first appropriation, supporters had clearly won the argument. With the story of the construction of Going to the Sun Road, here's Abigail Trebu. In 1918, the first National Park Service engineer, George Goodwin, planned a route that became the guideline for Trans Mountain Road construction in the early 1920s. Goodwin's proposal was very similar to the finished road, except that it made a steep climb up Logan Creek, using 15 switchbacks before reaching the Continental Divide at Logan Pass. During the early 1920s, Congress provided annual appropriations of $100,000 for construction of the Trans Mountain Highway, as the Going to the Sun Road was first called. With this money, the park signed contracts to begin construction at both ends of the route. In 1924, the appropriation increased to $1 million for a three-year road construction program. Frank A. Kitteridge of the Bureau of Public Roads directed the survey. The project, which mapped out 21 miles over the Continental Divide, started in September, and Kittredge raced to finish the survey before winter closed in. Kittredge and his team of 32 men often climbed 3,000 feet each morning to get to survey sites. The crew walked along narrow ledges and hung over cliffs by ropes to take many of the measurements. The work was too challenging for some, and the crew suffered from a 300% labor turnover in the three months of the survey. Park officials, 
and Stephen Mather, the first director of the National Park Service, were extremely impressed with the work of Kitteridge in the Bureau of Public Roads. As a result, Mather signed an agreement with the Bureau to supervise road construction in all national parks. Although the Bureau of Public Roads provided the road building expertise, National Park Service landscape architects, together with the Bureau's engineers, created the specifications for the road, working to blend it into the surrounding environment. They insisted that bridges, retaining walls, and guardrails be made of native materials. Most of the structures along the road used rock excavated from the adjacent mountainsides during construction. Contractors were required to use numerous small blasts of explosives, since large blasts would cause more destruction to the landscape. In August of 1924, Stephen Mather and Glacier National Park Superintendent Charles J. Crable were inspecting construction progress with George Goodwin and Tom Vent, a National Park Service landscape architect who opposed Goodwin's plan for 15 switchbacks. He lobbied Mather to approve an alternative route. Vent's suggestion required only one switchback. The group was divided in opinion and Mather wanted a solution. As the argument continued, Mather looked at Goodwin, then looked at Vent, glanced at their horses, turned, and stormed off toward another appointment. By the time Vent and Goodwin assembled the horses, they never caught up with the director. Two days later, Mather resolved the conflict, assigning Kitridge to resolve what became the present route. Today, the going to the Sun Road has only one switchback called The Loop, west of the Continental Divide. Tom Vent's suggestion had prevailed. Two contractors, the Colonial Building Company of Spokane, Washington, and A.R. Guthrie of Portland, Oregon, finished the remaining 10 miles of the road on the east side of Logan Pass. The most difficult construction on Colonial's contract was the 405-foot east side tunnel. No power equipment could reach the area, so laborers carried all the excavated rock out by hand. Access was also a challenge on Guthrie's section of the road. He floated a power shovel up St. Mary Lake on a barge to reach his company's construction site. When preparing to blast one particular large cliff one mile east of the loop, the laborers wore wool socks over their boots to prevent sparks. The contractor of the East Side Tunnel could bore 5 feet 4 inches every 24 hours. A Caterpillar 30 tractor slipped off the road in 1931, rolled down the mountainside, and climbed back up the 200 feet with only minor damage. The East Side Tunnel is 408 feet long and the West Side Tunnel is 192 feet long. The retaining wall near the Golden Staircase contains 788 cubic yards of masonry. In the late fall of 1932, after two decades of construction and more than $2 million, the first automobile passed over the entire 51 miles of the Going to the Sun Road. Glacier National Park formally opened the drive in a special ceremony on July 15, 1933. 
Over 4,000 people gathered on Logan Pass for an afternoon filled with congratulatory speeches extolling the hard work of the past 20 years. Glacier National Park's superintendent read aloud messages from the Secretary of the Interior, Harold Ikes, and National Park Service Director Horace Albright. The chairman of the Montana State Highway Commission delivered a speech honoring the late Stephen Mather. The Civilian Conservation Corps organized a chorus, and the Blackfeet Tribal Band played the Star Spangled Banner. The afternoon ended with a ceremony of peace among the three local tribes. In 1933, the Going to the Sun Road was a complete road, but sections built before 1925 had been constructed to lower standards. Using New Deal public work funding throughout the 1930s, the park contracted to improve both the west and east sides of the road. Until the late 1930s, the Going to the Sun Road had only a crushed rock surface. However, the park started to lay an asphalt pavement in 1938. World War II interrupted the series of pavement contracts, but by the end of 1950, the road was paved in its entirety. The road officially received its name, the Going to the Sun Road, during the 1933 dedication borrowing from the nearby Going to the Sun Mountain. Local legend and a 1933 press release issued by the Department of the Interior told the story of a deity, Sour Spirit, who came down from the sun to teach young Blackfeet the rudiments of the hunt. On his way back to the sun, Sour Spirit had his image reproduced on top of the mountain for inspiration to the Blackfeet. An alternate story suggests a white explorer in the 1880s concocted the name and the legend. No matter which version is accurate, the road named Going to the Sun still inspires all who travel it. During the road construction, access to the contractors' camps was often difficult, and as a result, they built many trails and tote roads used for carrying in supplies. When building the East Side Tunnel, Colonial Building Company built a tote road from Logan Pass to the tunnel. This road, about 200 feet above going to the Sun Road, is visible from the Logan Pass Visitor Center. Each contractor typically established a camp to accommodate their laborers. These camps were scattered every few miles along the road. Some of the camps were at Rising Sun, Bering Creek, Lunch Creek, the switchback just west of Logan Pass, the Loop, Logan Creek, and Avalanche Creek. A small cabin originally used by the engineers is still visible on Logan Creek upstream from the road. The road was constructed to a 6% grade because during the 20s, 6% was the maximum recommended grade because a car had to shift down to second gear at 7%. Then during the 30s, reconstruction took place and the alignment of the Going to the Sun Road changed in several places, particularly on the west side. Some of these old alignments are still visible as cuts through the forest. Look for them near Avalanche Creek, Lake McDonald Lodge, and especially between Apgar and West Glacier. The road is one of the most difficult roads in North America to snowplow in the spring. Up to 80 feet of snow can lie on top of Logan Pass. The road takes about 10 weeks to plow, even with equipment that can move 4,000 tons an hour. Each spring, the challenge of plowing the Going to the Sun Road begins. Here's a road crew on a typical day in early June as they work to clear the Rim Rock area, just west of Logan Pass. 
Here in this particular spot, the snow builds up and it's pretty deep here. There's, there's a pretty big drift right going into the rim rock. So you have your road profile on the hillside like this. As long as you have ground or dirt here to support your snow activities, you're good with the machine. But once you start pushing out and building up a big, large area of snow, then that snow can slide off. So right here, we're gonna have to cut it all down and push it back to the rotary. And the rotary's gonna have to launch it off and over the hill. And that's what goes on. It might seem kind of, you know, why are they doing it this way? But that's, the whole idea that they're doing it this way is because they cannot get out on the snow. Because if they get out on the snow with the machines, the possibility of the snow breaking loose. And that's what happened a few years ago when one machine broke, you know, slid down. Unfortunately, it was, you know, a good place to happen. Other places aren't so good. So that's what they'll be doing. And this is a uh, not a real safe area because it's real steep. It's straight down, so the machines are parked over there at night on the other side of Oberlin or way back. So now we have to wait for them to come back through the rim rock, and then they'll start working this down. It'll take a little while, but that's where we'll be going. Well, that's our operator, Casey Glade, in the excavator. And this is the rim rock area. And there's a lot of problems with rock falls as the snow is just full of rocks and debris and we can't use the rotary in there. So what he's doing is trying to get as much snow off the road as he can, obviously. But you can see how the snow builds up along the wall. And so he can reach up there and he can pull off any of that residual snow that's left on the wall that would tip, tip out later and close the road or tip down on a car or something like that. So he's pulling a lot of that residual snow, that high snow down. And then he's getting the dirty rocks and stuff and, and throwing them over the side. He can stay on the road bed, more or less, on the snow surface and he can throw, he's able with that long arm to throw the material out over the side. He's probably, he's probably about, I might guess, maybe 12, 15 feet above the road surface right there where he is. A fleet of vintage 1930s red buses called Red Jammers, or simply Reds, continued the tradition of offering guided tours along the road. The original bus drivers became affectionately known as gear jammers, or simply jammers, since they had to jam the manual gearbox into low to safely negotiate the steepest road sections. 33 of the original buses were rebuilt with flexible fuel engines in 2001, which operate mainly on propane, but can use gasoline and with automatic transmissions, making the jammer name archaic. Modern style shuttle buses for shorter trips and Blackfeet tour buses operate on the road as well. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, and narrated by Abigail Trebu, with much of the text from the National Park Service and Glacier National Park. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group, for more great American destinations, give us a listen at the See America podcast. Season three begins next week. If you're interested in RV travel, find us at the RV Miles podcast. You can also follow Abigail and me as we travel the country with our three boys at OurWanderingFamily.com. Peace,
Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks.